The scripture reading is taken from Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he, is back, because he has him back safe. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, come home, you killed the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kimberly. Happy New Year. It's great to start a new year together as a, as a Christian church. You just heard um, one of the more famous of Jesus' parables, and um, a parable that has meant a lot to me personally, and actually to this church. Um, this parable was really the foundation, is the foundation of the Redeemer movement. My first pastor, uh, Tim Keller, uh, a Redeemer Presbyterian church in Manhattan, used this parable as the basis for the whole church and his whole ministry because it encapsulates an insight into the essential Christian gospel. Gospel means good news. But what is the good news? If somebody asked you, what would you say? Typically, people come up with very different answers. Some people talk about the cross, Jesus dying for us. Some people talk about repentance, about sin. Jesus himself, when he began his ministry, said the gospel is that the kingdom is here. He was referring to himself as the king arrived. It's very hard to nail down the gospel. There's an aspect of it 
that is subtle. Because the essence of the gospel is a relationship. A relationship with God. And it's very hard to sum up easily and quickly a relationship. How would you sum up your relationship with your mother, or your father, or your spouse, or a friend, or a child? There's an aspect of the gospel that is unfolding, that is subtle and complex, that needs work, needs insight. The power, I would argue, of this parable is that it goes straight to the core of what relationship is all about. The relationship of this father to his two sons. And it shows us where the misunderstanding about the nature of the Christian gospel can arise. This is uh, from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. And the chapter begins with this. This is verse 1 of chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them? Jesus and his gospel did not make sense to the religious elites of Israel. And yet, the people who are on the outside, the outcasts, the tax collectors, those that are called sinners, that is, those who are not considered ceremonially part of the religious family of Israel, they flocked to him. He spent time with them. The Pharisees, the religious elite, those who are most obsessed with holiness, piousness, religiosity, were not the ones that Jesus came to. And it was mysterious to them. Whenever you think about the gospel, you have to recall this story. Because it shows us why Jesus and the Christian gospel is attractive and who it's attractive to. And it's not the people we expect. So let's look at it. I'll go quite quickly through it. It's a long parable. I'll just give you highlights and notes. Let's start at the beginning, verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Jesus continued, Jesus is actually responding to the challenge of the Pharisees. They're trying to understand him, and they come to visit him, and they start asking him questions, and Jesus starts giving in response a series of parables, a series of stories to explain to them who he is and what the gospel is. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Give me my share of the estate. This would have been a shocking story to tell. A terrible story. Back in this time, you received your estate, your inheritance, from your father when he died. This son is saying to his father, as much as, I wish you were dead. I want my estate. I want what's mine. I don't want you. And it would have been a costly, a shocking request 
because back in those times, wealth was predominantly material. It was land. It was cattle. It was things. You had to sell off what you owned in order to divide up an inheritance like this. The estate of this family would be diminished by this request. And yet, that's what the father does. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. How many people want to get out from under the thumb of their family, their previous identity, their previous previous position in life, and go off to some place where they're not known, like New York, and make a name for themselves? Live anonymously, create a new identity, try to live freely and differently from where we're born, from our parents, from the expectations of those we grew up with. That's exactly what he did. He wanted to free himself. He wanted to reinvent himself. He wanted to enjoy himself. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent, who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave anything. When you have money, when you have means, it's fun to be independent. It's fun to be a fr free of family and responsibility and expectations. But when you're poor, when you don't have anything, it's terrifying to find out that no one cares, no one knows you, no one worries about you, that there is no bottom, that you can fall all the way down. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. When he came to his senses, when he came back to the reality, the reality of who he truly is, that he does have an identity, that he does have a family, that he does have a, a father, that he does have a home. The Christian language for this, by the way, is repentance. Coming to our senses. Turning away from what is unreal and unwholesome and destructive and alienating and turning back to our true identity, children of God. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. Notice, <clears throat> this is true repentance. He recognizes not only his fault in his rebellion against his father, but he also has an insight that many of us miss. As creatures, that is, as God's creations, we don't belong just to ourselves. When we sin, when we rebel, when we uh, do something wrong, we are sinning against our Creator. We are 
besmirching his name. We are letting him down. Repentance is always repenting of what we have done for other, to other people, but also, and fundamentally, what we've done wrong to God, in God's eyes. How we have violated our identity as his creation. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Eager forgiveness. The father doesn't just stand there tapping his toe with his arms folded and a stern face, watching the son come back with a tail between his legs. He runs to him. This is the welcome of someone who truly cares, who truly wants the son back. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The double repentance. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The ring and the robe means he's not restored as some kind of slave or servant, but he is fully back in his position as inheritor of what remains of the estate. His position in the family is restored. So here we have what many people would consider the perfect Christian sermon. Certainly the Pharisees would have loved this bad child, squanders everything, gets his comeuppance, and has to repent in order to return to the love of the Father. How many sermons end right there? Basically, it's morality. Be good. Do the right thing. Don't be like the prodigal son. Don't be bad, but be good. Don't squander. Live properly. Live in relationship to those, your family, to those above you, do the right thing. But Jesus' parable does not end here. And this is the kicker. I think this is the aspect of this parable that opens up the gospel in a fresh way. What about the older brother? Verse 25. Meanwhile, the oldest son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. Why was he angry? You know, his younger brother has returned. The family is intact. What is the source of the elder brother's anger? Well, he's the good guy. 
He followed the rules. He stayed at home. He's working on the fields for his father. He's done everything right. And yet, the younger brother, the one who's done everything wrong, gets the fatted calf, gets the party, gets the celebration, gets to squander half the estate and yet come back and gets back into the family with his old position. For the elder brother, this is fundamentally unfair. He's angry because the deal that he had with his father has been broken. The brother, the elder brother, had turned his relationship with his father into a business relationship. I will do what you expect of me, and in exchange, I will be due my inheritance when the time comes. He turned his family relationship with a father into a business relationship with a boss. And doing the right thing was to get to guarantee the inheritance and not to guarantee the relationship. What were the Pharisees doing? What do all religious people do? They behave. They do the right thing so that God will owe them. So that they get into heaven, or they get what they're due. They follow all the rules, they're disciplined, they're rigorous, they will do everything that is necessary to reach the goal of getting what they think they deserve. And that is not the Christian gospel. For one of a better world, let's call that religion, or moralistic religion. It is not the Christian gospel. There was a wonderful film uh, some years ago, I think it was back in the, in the 80s, uh, Amadeus, which was all about uh, Amadeus Mozart, the composer. And in the movie, there is a competitor to Mozart throughout the movie, Salieri. And they're, they're competing in, in creating music and, and performing music, composing music. And there's this extraordinary deal that Salieri makes with God. And I'd like to read it to you. This is Salieri's prayer. He says this in his commentary. It's wonderful. When I was a child, I offered up secretly the proudest prayer a boy could think of. Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and be celebrated myself. Make me famous through the world, dear God. Make me immortal. After I die, let people speak my name forever with love for what I wrote. In return, and this is the deal, and it's a little boy making this prayer, give me all that. In return, I will give you my chastity, my industry, my deepest humility every hour of my life, and I will help my fellow man all I can. Amen and amen. What a prayer. For a little boy to make. 
what a deal he has just made with God. And everything goes well. He becomes a core composer. He's successful. He's famous. He thinks the deal is working out. And he remains chaste. And he does the right thing in pious humility. Until this brat, Mozart, shows up. And if you watch the movie that is made, it's exactly what Mozart is portrayed at. An absolute, undisciplined brat. Amadeus, by the way, means beloved of God. But he is vulgar. He is self-indulgent. He's promiscuous. And to Salieri, it is incomprehensible. Salieri says this to God in a prayer. It was incomprehensible. Here I was, denying all my natural lust in order to deserve God's gift. And there was Mozart, indulging his in all directions, even though engaged to be married, and no rebuke at all from God. From now on, we are enemies, Saturday is speaking to God. You and I. And for the rest of the movie, Salieri devotes his, all his energies to destroying the beautiful music that Mozart is creating. What do you see in that little story? The poison of religious morality. Turning our relationship with God as a father into a deal. I do this, you do that. Turning the gracious love of a father into a deal. A deal that is dependent on behavior, on denying natural passions, that is all about morality, doing the right thing, that is all about a facade, an unnaturally lived life, in order to get what you think you deserve. That's exactly the kind of, of heart that the son has and the Pharisees have. The father goes out. Remember, the son refuses to go into the party, so the father comes out to him. Verse 29. He answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitute, comes home, you kill the fetid calf for him. I slaved for you. The son sees his relationship with his father as master and slave. This is not a beloved son who lives in the love of his father. He has become alienated because of this deal. A relationship of grace and love becomes slavery. I have never disobeyed your orders. Like the Pharisees, like all moral moralistic people, there is a belief here that as long as I do the right thing, as long as I obey, I am owed something. I couldn't celebrate with my friends. Ultimately, just like the younger brother who runs away, the elder brother wants to run away and celebrate 
his wealth with his friends. He doesn't want the father around. He wants the father dead just as much. He just goes around it a different way. When the son of yours. The deal has turned his brother into a competitor. This son of yours is no brother of mine. He has become alienated not only from his father, but from his brother. And his brother's return is to him a calamity because it threatens the inheritance he has worked so hard for. What's the point? We often think that the issue in our relationship with God is do the right thing. As long as I do the right thing, God will love me. But with this story, what you see is the Father always loves. Doing the right thing can turn into a way of avoiding God just as much as running away. Flannery O'Connor, a great Christian author, wrote a, a book, Wise Blood. And in it, she has this character, Hazel Motes. And Hazel Motes is a bad man. But he always does the right thing. Very pious, very moralistic, very religious. And O'Connor says this of Hazel Motes. There was a deep, black, word, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. There it is. Two ways of avoiding our relationship with God. Run away. That's what younger brothers do. Or do the right thing. Be very, very good or be very, very bad. Both of them are ways of avoiding God. Both of them are denial of the gospel. The good news of the God who wants a relationship with each of us. Why would people want to avoid God? Why would these two different ways of avoiding God be so attractive to so many people? If you go back to the beginning of the Bible, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve have everything. And yet, they rebel against God. Why? Because God says, don't eat of the fruit of this one tree out of all of creation. And the snake puts this idea in the head, in Eve's head. If you obey God, if you are obedient to him with your life, you're going to miss out on something. That fruit must be amazing. And though they have everything in creation, that idea grows to the point where they have to taste it. I would put it to you that most people fear, their biggest fear, it is if they become a Christian, if they put themselves in God's will rather than their own will, they're going to miss out on something. God doesn't have my best interests at heart. If I follow him, there's something that I'm not going to be able to do that I, I'm going to miss out on. I need to be my own boss. I can't trust God with my life. 
And also, relationships are scary. What if God turns out, put demands on me that I can't or don't want to meet? Deep down, there is a fear that obedience to God is going to mean that we suffer, that we lack something, that we are not going to have something that we think we deserve. Verse 31. My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. From the father's perspective, the inheritance, the wealth, the behavior is irrelevant. He wants the family to be together. That is the focus of the Christian gospel. The relationship for all eternity. The putting back together of what is broken. The restoration of all who are lost to membership in the family. And behavior is not the issue. Why did all the sinful people, the outcasts, flock to Jesus? Because they knew that that was true of him. He was not focused on their behavior. He was not focused on their status. He was not focused even on what they believed. He just wanted them. Religious people despised the Christian gospel back then, and they despise it now. And it is only when you have a sense of these two sides of the gospel that we need to repent not only of the things that we do wrong, but we also have to repent of all the things that we do right. You are not more loved because you do the right thing. In fact, doing the right thing can alienate you from God just as effectively. So here's a question. Why are you here? Are you primarily here to have a relationship with God? And by the way, the test of that is, do you have a relationship with God? Are you praying? Are you speaking to God every day? Are you spending time in his word? Do you worship? Does your family worship together? Is God present in your home? Do you invoke his name? Is he part of the conversation? Is he part of the meals you have together? Is he part of the family life? At the core of Christianity is a relationship. And if that is not there, you are either a younger brother who needs to be saved or an elder brother who needs to be saved. Think of what Jesus did. Jesus is part of the family. Jesus is the only son of the Father. Did he sit on that? Did he remain there? No. He comes after the lost. He comes after the younger brothers and the older brothers. 
He's the one who is already at the ultimate feast, but goes to find others to bring in. He's the one that goes into the darkness so that people can be brought into the light. He goes up his robes of righteousness, this ring of position, and becomes a humble man, ends up dying a ghastly death, ends up alienated from God on the cross, his father, so that we would never be alienated from him, becomes a slave, slave to sin, our sin, so we can be set free and be reunited with our true father, dies alone so that we will never be alone. When you see him doing that for you, and it's all here, by the way, when you recognize he's done that for you personally, then that relationship can grow. Then our hearts are melted. And if we have run away, we can repent. And if we are alienated by our own goodness, we can repent and be restored with hearts that have been melted. This is the beginning of a whole new year together as a Christian church. This should be the very foundation of everything that we do. And if we reflect this gospel, we should not expect to be surprised by the people who walk in through that door. People who don't have it all together. People who need to be restored and renewed. People that we would not choose to be our friends, but are attracted by the sweetness of this gospel. I suggest that should be our goal for this next year. That this is the gospel that we should be sharing. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you that you are a gracious Father, not a demanding God, not our boss, not an example to live up to, not a tyrant who commands obedience, but a gracious Father who has offered his only Son so that we can call ourselves children of God. Lord, we thank you for the Christian gospel. We thank you for this parable and all that it reveals. Lord, we thank you for the gift of Christ, and it's in his name, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.